Welcome to the Sorch Podcast, where we explore Sikh and wider South Asian history, art and philosophy with historians, artists and researchers. The energy really that that you give out, it's it's quite, I don't know quite what the word is, but it's quite like, quite, it's almost like fuel. I don't know quite how, how else to explain it, but just in the, the small interactions I've had with yourself, or just on Twitter or in the run up to this, there's something that you give out that's, that makes me, you want to then continue it. So yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. But yeah, sorry. No, I appreciate, I have to say how much I appreciate that though. Like you're already going to start me off crying, Amr. <laughs> oh no, 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 please don't. Don't do what my mom does. Like we, I moved out yeah. about, I don't know, two years, three years ago now. And even now I'll go over and I'll leave the house don't and she'll start crying. And I'm like, mom, like, like why are you <laughs> You probably know more than than I do, right? That in our community, the respect to your elders, and especially for me, I think you just have to be appreciative. So just to introduce you then to everyone else, I have the pleasure of talking to Shadon Jitkor from Canada. She's a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia, focusing on museums and critical race theory. She's a co-coordinator at the South Asian Studies Institute, an instructor at the University of Fraser Valley, and a co-curator of the Sikh Heritage Museum located in the National Historic Gurdjieff Temple, which is its official name. Thank you, obviously, for making the time. Yeah, please don't welcome. start crying during the <laughs> podcast. I can just about handle my mom doing that. Please, please don't, don't, don't do that to me now. I'll cry. <laughs> Once you get to know me, Amr, you're gonna know. Like, me. Like, I just cry so. Much. Oh gosh. I'm an emotional basket no, case. Don't worry. That's fine. That's fair. No, I can't. I don't. I don't blame you. I can well imagine that my mom is. She sounds exactly like like you, and it sounds like you guys will get on like a house Aww. on fire. So um. Yeah, yeah, no, I look forward to it. Okay, so I know I've given you a bit of an introduction myself, and to be fair, it is quite a mouthful, but could you perhaps give us an explanation of how you and your family and your ancestry ended up in Canada, and then how you've ended up in all of these various places, because you're PhD, you're at the South Asian Institute, there's all of these kind of various roles going on. So how did you end up there in the first place? Okay, that's a great question. So I was actually originally born in the UK, so I was born in Bradford, um, and my parents uh, also were married married in the UK, like they met in the UK. But my dad's originally from India, Punjab, India. And my mom's actually from Kenya. So she was born in Kenya. Um, Her mom and dad had moved there, uh, I believe, to work as part of the British Empire, right? There's a lot of Sikh communities in in parts of um, Africa and Southeast Africa. But my brother, my sister and I were all born in England. Um, We didn't live there very long uh, as younger children. We migrated to Canada or Alberta in particular in 88. Um, And I've lived where I live now in Abbotsford since 1992. So I've been in West Canada and BC for a very, very long time. And, and you know, this is my home. Like I, I'm very, this is my kind of comfort space. This community that I've built is um, my safe space. And so though we do go back to India, you know, every couple of years, I, I rarely go back to England. I don't think I've been back in a Gosh, in a very, very long time. I think 20 years it's been since I've been back to England. So my home spaces are really uh, Western Canada, British Columbia, and Punjab, India is where I kind of uh, look back to in terms of my historical roots and and where I get energized from. That's a little bit about, you know, my family migration history. How I came to be in the role that I am is is also interesting. I've always been a history buff. So I did my undergraduate degree in history and English extended minor. And my master's thesis actually looked at Nehangs in the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And that was just by accident, really. Like I happened to be reading some books, looking at travel accounts by, you know, 
white British colonials and something piqued my interest about the way they wrote about the Nehangs in the 19th century. And so that is what led me to do my master's thesis on the Nehangs at the court of Ranjit Singh. And then all of a sudden I became involved in the work of the Sikh Heritage Museum here in Abbotsford, BC, through my work at the South Asian Studies Institute. And that really began in 2011. And that was when we were celebrating the Centennial, 100-year celebration of the Gursik Temple, which is the official name of the Gurdwara. So in 2011, it was 100 years since the Gurdwara was built. And something about that moment has impacted me to this very day. There was, you know, nationwide recognition. There was so much energy and a buzz. And I realized that this site is so incredibly special to me as a Sikh, but also, you know, just about community histories. And 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 there's so much that this Gurdwara can give um, in so many different spaces and places. And so I became drawn to the work, curatorial work of the Sikh Heritage Museum. And I'm privileged that I can do that while working the job that I am at, at the University of the Fraser Valley. And since then, it's become my passion project. And that's what ended up feeding my PhD work. And it's led me to this moment where I'm just in the midst of writing my dissertation dissertation chapters right now. And one of those chapters is going to be looking at the history of the Sikh Heritage Museum and the Gurdwara in Abbotsford and how it's kind of a decolonized project because it's actually counter to the way a lot of white colonial museums work, right? The colonial foundations of the museum is a problematic foundation. So our Gurdwara is something very special. So that's where I am today. And what I hope to do going forward is look at museums and how museums like the Sikh Heritage Museum offer so much to the world. Wow. Okay. So you you mentioned that you were born in the UK, but but from the sounds of things, you, it sounds like you you uh, identify pretty much with being Canadian. So in terms of your identity in that respect, like how how do you identify? Because I think inter- an interesting thing I find in England, and especially with the legacy of the British Empire, is there's always this clash between being Sikh and British. And I think I don't necessarily, perhaps I'm just blind to it, but I don't perhaps necessarily see the same issues in other diaspora communities. You know, the, the hyphenated question is always there, I think, for many diaspora. A diasporic communities, and it exists in Canada too. In fact, the etymology of how we were named in this country is really interesting, right? Like we were called, quote, Hindus when we first arrived. So H-I-N-D-O-O-S. Then we went from being Hindus to East Indians, which was also problematic if you look at the historical legacy of where that word comes from. And then we moved from East Indians to Indo-Canadian. And now we're in this strange space, like you asked me what I identify as, I actually don't identify as just Canadian because I don't conform to kind of these nation building projects. So I'm not necessarily a fan of saying I'm a Canadian. I say I'm Sikh Canadian. I don't even say Punjabi Canadian, right? I say I'm Sikh. And part of that identity isn't always something I've always called myself. You asked me 10 years ago, I may have very well said, yeah, I'm Canadian, right? Like I've changed and that evolution is allowed to happen. And part of that evolution is me learning more about my history, me learning more about the foundations of my faith and, you know, the the problematic nature of even calling myself Canadian and what that means to displacing Indigenous peoples and their very foundation of owning all this land. That's my growth. So today I will call myself a Sikh Canadian, not Punjabi Canadian, not Indo-Canadian, Sikh Canadian, because I truly in my heart identify as a Sikh first. No, that's a fair response. Just con- continuing on from that, then you you mentioned that the museum 
at the Godwara is in itself a decolonized project. I just love for you to expand slightly more on that and and what you mean by that for everyone listening and and perhaps comparing that to kind of a, the 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 usual kind of museums that we're used to kind of like the British Museum. When I teach classes sometimes about public history, I show a clip um, from the Black Panther and it's a clip from the British Museum and the main protagonist is in a in a very white sanitized space looking at quote, African artifacts boxed in cases. What I tell students is in that matter of two minutes, that movie has unpacked everything that's wrong with museums like the British Museum, right? They sanitize us, they dehumanize us, and they, they create their stories, often written by, quote, white experts about us and who we are and our identity. And the Sikh Heritage Museum does none of that. And that's why inherently... It is a decolonized space. The history of that Gurdwara is that its construction began in 1908. The 40 or 50 Sikh men who worked in Abbasford at that time literally carried the lumber piece by piece up a half a kilometer stretch to build that Gurdwara. And that Gurdwara is intact the way it was built 100 plus years ago. So when I say there's an energy, like you talk about my energy, there's an energy in that building. Oh my God, the energy in there is just... It's, it's something else. And I get to curate and design exhibits in where what used to be the Lunger Hall because our community has grown. So it wasn't viable anymore as a Lunger Hall. So how beautiful is that? Something that was a space of seva in terms of nourishment of food has become a place of seva for nourishment of the mind. And when we do exhibit openings, it's also decolonized because we still go upstairs and matate. We do an ardas and we have community members, non-sick, sick, uh, many different communities come and they know what they're going to do. They know they're going to go upstairs and matatek and sit, sit in a collective sangat. Then we go downstairs and honor the exhibit. That's like no other museum in the world, really. No, it's not. No, it's not true. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right there. You're right. Um, Why do you think then that even though we have spaces like that, academics like yourselves and others who are creating the narrative from our perspective or taking ownership of the narrative in that regard, why do you think there's such a backlash to academics or Sikh academics and then this kind of and to be honest I've only ever seen it seen this insult thrown out from people in America or Canada um I don't know whether that's just kind of like an American thing I've never seen it in in the UK but it's kind of like oh he's a leftist or she's a leftist and they're infiltrating Sikhi with their whatever it is and it could be whatever label you want communism feminism socialism like the list goes on and on and on why do you think then that we're as a community having such a clash between actually owning the narrative and then almost kind of having this disassociative effect of actually let's just completely not involve because the entire system's rigged almost. So my answer is very simple to this. I think we as a Sangat are actually forgetting to learn and read and engage meaningfully. I think we've become so um, obsessed with social media that we only rely on social media to become our knowledge holders and to become our guides of uh, conversations around Sikh history and Sikh identity. And and I think that's really problematic, this trend um, that I am seeing, because most of us who are attacked aren't even being read properly. 
right? Like it, nobody's taking the time to read the the really in-depth research and work and, and actually embody and understand who we are. I was speaking to um, a Sakraj from the Sikh archive and he made this amazing comment saying, you know, social media dehumanizes everybody. And that's what's happening with a lot of these, quote, um, leftist academics. We've become so dehumanized that anytime we put out anything that's, you know, showcasing our work, we're automatically othered within our own sangat and within our own community as though we're the enemy without even actually meaningfully understanding, without even researching the website, like go to the website of the Heritage Gurdwara, look at the work we're doing, look at the exhibits we've put on, on Sikh feminism, on Gadar, on Kamagata Maru, like, but nay, you just want to know in a 40 character soundbite what it is I'm doing. And from that, you're going to judge my whole identity and my whole ethos and my whole energy. That is dehumanizing. And of, of course, as we've seen, it happens in a gendered aspect. There's there happens in a transphobic, homophobic context. So within that dehumanizing, there's layers of oppression. It happens within an anti-caste uh, or casteist context. And it's becoming very um, more insidious and popular to label us rather than learn from us. I just love how in the last kind of 10 seconds, you flipped into mother mode and went into Punjabi. Like as soon as you said yeah. that, I went, Did I do that? yeah, I went, oh shit, she's going <laughs> to like, she's going to swing for someone in a second. Um, I completely appreciate and see where you're coming from. Um, do you think that a lot of this also has to do with kind of the rise of, and I don't, I don't mean to kind of put it into a, such a small nutshell, but kind of this Trumpism effect of if you don't like what the other person's saying, you kind of just quote unquote shit on them and like hope they go away. I think there's a connection in terms of what we choose to be fed by in our surroundings and our world and what we eliminate and erase, right? Like I was talking to somebody else about this. It's very interesting. Like everything I'm fed is already feeding into a narrative of what I agree with in terms of social justice, in terms of gender equity, anything. I'm already being fed that because that's what I do. But as like, you know, um, well and able and thinking human beings, we also need to learn to read other things from other perspectives. And I feel like there's like this, this Trumpism effect is that the hate has overtaken the capacity to do that. Right. Like, I'm also not saying that I'm going to go try to see the RSS point of view and empathize with them. That's not what I'm saying. Right. What I'm saying, there's a there's a there's a fine there's a balance between total hate versus, you know, like what where are people coming from, from such a space of inequity or harm that they think the way they do. And there's a, there's a balance if I'm making sense of what I'm trying to say. Um, I'm not going to support RSS or Hindutva or, you know, Trump is I'm not going to support that. It is racist. And we have to start labeling that is racist and fascist. Um, there are moments where we have to be clear in our boundaries, but at the same time, for those who are leaning towards more right-wing thinking and ideology, start to question, why do we think that way? Why are being, we being fed the narratives that we are? And, and I was watching a Netflix documentary about social media. We are being fed, let me tell you, right? Like we know this. There are um, algorithms that are set in place to feed us narratives we already believe in. So a truly like attuned human being wouldn't be aware of this and become critical. Why is it that we've become so uncritical? We just take everything that's given to us on our phone or in our computers and that's all that there is to it. No, open your minds to more. We don't do that anymore. And, and that's my worry is that that's why we, we um, are lending ourselves to this Trumpism effect and, and Modi effect. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I think you're right in that social media definitely creates an echo chamber for your views. So you end up you end up kind of with this people who will agree with you or will share those views with you rather than having any type of kind of critical or any or anything just outside of those those outside of your own constraints so to speak can i add to that i'm um, quickly yeah, sure, as well like, and i just want to give i just want to give an example right like i posted something once and somebody very kindly messaged me saying sharon that's kind of ableist language or i think it was something i said was harming somebody else right away i i checked myself and i said well you know somebody just reminded me that this word that i used was ableist there is nothing wrong with checking yourself when it's harming somebody else. Like when you're oppressing a, a group of people who see themselves as silenced, erased, violence enacted on them. What is wrong with attuning ourselves to that? And that's the same with looking at transphobia in our community and homophobia. If somebody is telling you, I am erased from a Sangat, right? Like my experiences are um, not here. Or if they are, they're enacted upon in terms of violence. We have to attune ourselves to that and learn, not um do the opposite right like engage in in more silencing and it comes from ego right like i was listening to doc uh, professor bupinder pogols i think you were uh, really liking that too i mean that to me is a must listen for people who engage in like this quote leftist hate mongering or leftist um pushing away but he talks about i think about ego as well right like if we the tutu meme happens when we start saying my ego is being attacked Right. And that's, of course, once again, inherent to something we're not supposed to be doing as six. We're supposed to put our egos to the side and actually engage in a knowledge building capacity. And that's why these podcasts are so important. You're building a corpus of knowledge for people to open heartedly listen to. And we're being honest in the actual conversation we're having, because by the premise is, is we, I don't know. And that's the entire fun of this. Um, and by default, I have to learn. So I didn't know anything about Canadian Sikh history until I had to read about it for the podcast. So, so and, and similarly, I had, there was a podcast we've done with an artist and I knew nothing about kind of traditional art and Sikhi. And so I had to read up about that. And it's kind of, but then it's also sharing that and, and hoping someone somewhere takes something positive from that or is like, oh, piques their interest or, or whatever. But just coming back then to Canada and, and Sikh history. So in the small research that I, I started with, it says that the first Sikhs ended up coming to Canada in 1904 and established themselves in British Columbia. They made up 90% of the 5,000 South Asians that had arrived there. Soon after, the Vancouver Karsad Devan Society is established, and then in 1908, immigration is just banned outright. It was interesting, though, because as I was reading, it didn't seem like there was this complete kind of anti- Indian or anti-Brown agenda because there was newspapers from Canada in 1902 which actually said turbaned men excite interest or inspiring men from India how the crowds. I know it still kind of holds that slight Orientalist tinge but it doesn't necessarily seem to be as negative as kind of some of the others. So first thing I wanted to ask is why was there such a rapid kind of up and down in the immigration towards non-Canadians I guess is probably the easiest way of, of, of labeling them in this situation. Like why, why did it go from kind of yeah, you guys like 5,000 of you can turn up and then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, just ban it. So just a couple of things with the um, intro. The 1904 stat is based on Census Canada data. And as we know, census taking is always problematic because there are 
there's actually oral histories that say there were six living in golden British Columbia, which is up north BC, as early as like 1897, 1898. Um, so there may have been uh, non-traditional or you could say, quote, illegal pathways by which there were six settlers in British Columbia pre-1904. But official Canadian census data is what we have to go by, apparently, as historians. But that's always being challenged now, right? Like oral archives challenges um, traditional archives. So that's why when you were looking at, you know, the Sikh Heritage Museum Canada in Brampton, they even argue that 1897, 1898, because they think, um, I think they believe the Lip, the Leap Singh came to Canada, or there's an argument for that, that history. But per, I'm talking about permanent settlement. And so permanent settlement by Sikh settlers was around that 1902 to 1904 um, area. Um, and, you know, your question about how there were ups and downs in the reception of, of Sikh Canadians who came, they were so small in number to begin with that not many people uh, noticed in the sense that their physical spaces they felt weren't being invaded. That was often a language used, you know, in the newspapers as well. Their jobs were not being taken. It really came down to these spaces and places that they either saw or, you know, didn't see sick. When the number started to increase, which was around 1907, um, all of a sudden, white uh, Anglo-Saxon Europeans felt like they're jobs were at risk. A lot of these sick laborers, like Chinese Canadians, Japanese Canadians at the time, and Indigenous workers um, were paid a fraction less than, you know, white European counterparts. And there is a labor extraction taking place as well, right? Like there's labor exploitation taking place where a lot of these men were doing triple the amount of work paid much, much less than, than white European settlers. So the argument was that these white people felt like their jobs were being taken. And it's so interesting that that's a common rhetoric that you hear up until this very day. It's an excuse, right? It's an excuse that white people use to assume that they have a claim and ownership of a land space. And in the Canadian context, they had none. That land that they're working on is on Indigenous land that was taken and stolen by the Canadian government. So the, the even the context by which white people think that they're being invaded, their labor is being invaded, their economic status is a pretense. It's all racist. It's a racism. It's a racist state formation that's taking place. But the other thing is, I've read this amazing book by Nayan Shah, and he writes about the visible sick settler was unlike anything white Europeans experienced, right? Like we're, many of these men wore the stars, they kept their geish for as long as they could, many of them, until they were forced to have to cut their hair or shave because they could literally were almost destitute. They couldn't get anything. But the men wearing the keeping their geish and keeping their star were so different than what anything white European settlers had seen that, you know, they, there was a freakish aspect to it. And Chinese Canadians faced that as well, because many Chinese um, settlers kept long braids as well. So it, it for them, it like totally um was anti-patriarchal. It, it, it questioned their gender norms and, and you know, long hair. That, that's so odd. Things like that freakishized our community. We didn't even have proper places where we could cremate, right? We had to go into the forest. And I've seen newspaper articles of Abbotsford where, you know, white European settlers are like calling us freaks because we're cremating. These things created a narrative about us as an other, as an undesirable in the words of Ali Kazmi, right? So, I don't, it, I always uh, push away from the narrative of, oh, you know, they worried about their jobs. It's not jobs. 
It's part of a machine of racism and state-sanctioned racism. The same time that, you know, people in Western Canada are complaining about their jobs being taken, in Eastern Canada and Ottawa, there's legislations taking place that are banning families from reuniting um, with the six settlers in the in the 1908 to 1920 period. There's actually legislation and laws that are saying, no, women and children can no longer come. Like there's something very, it's racist. It's a part of a racist machine that is stopping settlement in this country. And it's not just happening to six, it's happening to other communities as well. So uh, it happened as soon as it became more visible. The visibility of six is what started the, you know, anti-Asian riots movement and many other uh, forms of state-sanctioned racism, the taking away of our vote. We had our, we, South Asia, uh, six in this country had the vote up until 1907. It was actually taken away the right to vote. And it's something that we often take for granted. The right to vote is citizenship. The right to vote is a voice. The right to vote is power, land ownership. That was taken away for 40 years for Sikh Canadians in this country, and South Asians in this country. That's nothing small. That's huge. The only reason we got it was in 1947, India gained independence. And then it created a bit of synergy where, you know, South Asians were seen as being legitimized somehow. So once again, I give long-winded answers to your questions because they're really complicated questions, in fact. And I'm very careful of not allowing the narrative of just, oh, white people felt their labor was being challenged, like their access to economy was being challenged as an excuse to be racist. No, it's part of this ideology of white European settlers thinking they have a claim naturally to everything and anything. And anybody who looks other is deemed as being the enemy. It makes absolute sense. And that's also why I asked you yeah. these questions, because I knew you would give me these type of very uh, long and <laughs> juicy answers, because there's so much in that that you can unpack and work yeah. with. But no, I completely understand what you mean. And you're correct in that the narrative of the other is still something that's continuously played by nation states. So like we're just with Brexit in the last few years, um, Europeans were made all of a sudden to be the other like random, but that's that was what Middle England decided to turn on. Even with people, uh, even with refugees in the English Channel, like some of them are drowning, and 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 some of the comments that are made by certain parts of of British society, and you just think, Jesus, the racism isn't dead. Like it's not dead at all. Such a lack of humanity given to anybody who is not, you know, white Anglo-Saxon heritage. Like it's this predates like the century. This is like centuries worth of, you know creating concepts of race and hierarchy. And it's still, and that's why that knowledge of, you know, Black history and, and authors who are Black activists have written about this for centuries. It's not just the woke movement we're living in. This has already been done, but now all of a sudden we're paying attention to it. So now we're more attuned to, to these conversations that have centuries worth of, um, you know, a, a discourse built around it. What I find interesting with the fact that immigration policies in Canada kind of seem to waver up and down is that very soon after 1908, so in 1911, the Gursik Temple of Abbotsford is completed and it opens up in 1912. I found a, a newspaper extract which said from the Abbotsford Post, which reported on March the 1st, 1912, that members of the congregation were very much impressed with the highly intelligent address delivered by priest Deja Singh, who spoke in his native tongue, obviously Punjabi, and in English. Could you explain how that Gurdwara came about, considering it kind of seems to pop up just after a decade of anti-Asian violence. Um, there was Asiatic Exclusion League who in 1907 led riots against immigrant communities. That was just one that I managed to find. Um, so yeah, how how did that come about and, and kind of what was its backdrop in, in, in that respect? 
Oh, great question. I love this question because oftentimes we hear the word sojourner. You know, the these Sikhs who came were just here to work and go back to India. Their sojourner status, you know, they don't want to live in Canada permanently. And that narrative and academics and historians have used this. And it really frustrates me because I look to the Gurdwara, the Gursikh temple and say, this Gurdwara and what it represents is actually very counter to six only coming to Canada temporarily or wanting sojourner status, right? Temporary status. To me, this Gurdwara represents permanency and a, a, a claim to citizenship and identity in this country. And that took place in many different ways. But let's talk about the Gurdwara, for example. As far as I know, there's no Gurdwara in the world that looks like our Gurdwara. And um, you can find it by looking on our website, canadiansikheritage.ca. Our Gurdwara is, looks like, from the outward form, the way the pioneering houses used to look a century ago. Like the outward structure has a false front, a gabled roof. It looks like a home. And even to this very day, when I give tours of the Gurdwara, I'll have non-Sikh, you know, schools and teachers say, we just call it, you know, the house on South Fraser Way or the temple house on South Fraser Way, because it's just seen as a home, right? But people know on the inside, it's very much a fully functioning Gurdwara. Um, the Guru Granth Sahib Ji is there. The original Guru Granth Sahib Ji from 1912 is in a, another back room located within this space. So to me, I think this is a representation of the men saying two things. We're, we're staking our claim uh, as citizens to this land, but at the same time, we're just as, quote, Canadian as you, right? We're going to build something in the outward form that is a Canadian building, looks like the way the houses looked at the time. And not only that, they purposefully chose the location for where the site of that Gurdwara is because it's of the highest elevation, I think there's something so incredibly powerful in that. These men in the 1908 said, give us the highest ground you can give us because we want people from far away to be able to know from the Nishan Sahib that there is a Gurdwara for them and there is a space for them. And I've heard really fascinating oral histories that Gadarites, so those fighting as a part of the anti-colonial Gadar movement, would follow the light bulb on top of the Nishan Sahib at our Gurdwara from America. So the border is, you know, located close by my city where I live. And they would walk from the Sumas Washington American border to our Gurdwara site. That's such an amazing story. So this Gurdwara is anything but a temporary status representation. This is a permanent kind of marker of our space, in, you know, here in Canada as, as Sikh Canadians or Canadians. Correct me if I'm wrong to say that. Would you um, also class it as a safe space considering all of the violence and the, the, the anti-immigrant rhetoric and all of the, just essentially the outside world, it was just a space where you could lock it all off? Oh, it was. You know, when you gave that stat about 90% being um, six, there were Hindus, there were Muslims. And when there was only the Gurdwara at the time, I think by 1911, there may have been three Gurdwaras in British Columbia, the main one being the Vancouver West 2nd Avenue one. They would all congregate in these spaces and talk about, you know, anti-colonial movement. They would read aloud Gadar poetry at the podium. Like, could you imagine that? Reading Gadar poetry within the Gurdwara Sangat space to say, this is our rallying cry. That we're no more going to be, um, 
you know, quote, servants in the in India and servants here as well. The, the energy was a safe space. The fact that, you know, food was provided, nourishment, a place to sleep for newly arrived settlers, six settlers, was in these Gurdwara spaces. And that's when, why I say our Gurdwara has an energy because of those collective stories. When the Kamagata Maru was um, stuck on shore because the racist Canadian government wouldn't allow the passengers to come in, shore committees in Vancouver, as well as our Gurdwara, met where communities rallied together and raised funds to pay for the lawyer, right? To, to be able to support the passengers on top on the Kamagata Maru. These aren't small little snippets of our history. These are part of a collective of who we are as Sikh, right? We don't just serve Sikh and we never have. No, completely. And I think what I would take away from everything you said about the good daughter is is it it I don't know about it now, but from the history that you've you've provided, it definitely sounds like it was the heart or the brain of just seek activism, however you wish to define that, whether it's the the God that I or however whatever kind of machination that takes, but it was it was involved in the struggle, so to speak. Totally. And, you know, when our vote was taken away, as well as like we have meeting minutes and they're the most fascinating meeting minutes of the cause of the One Society Vancouver. It's actually a resource you can read online through the SFU collections or it's on the Kamagata Maru Journey website. I read these minutes as part of my research. The amount of time these community members spent rallying together, strategizing, speaking to local politicians, it is an activism like and a collective kind of call to action like I've never seen. And this is when the community was very small. So so yeah, I don't want to minimize the the activism that existed. Absolutely. And I think the for me why it's so interesting is because I would compare that to a so <clears throat> I've never heard of anything like that from any type of UK Gurdwara. Like I might be blind to it or I might be ignorant to it and, and I'll be happy to be enlightened by someone, but I've never heard that related, related to any UK Gurdwara. Um, the historic connection with the first Gurdwara in the UK is because I think it was established with the help of Maharaj Dilip Singh or some kind of connection with that. But to compare it to a modern day, it kind of be like the committees of the local Gurdwaras or the big Gurdwaras in like the major cities basically being like, all right, everyone put your money and your skills or whatever it is together. We're taking down the Muddi government or we're, we're going like, like as in to actually put it into like a real life analogy and, and bring it to what it is in terms of like the stark reality it is. And actually, in all fairness, I find that gobsmacking because in the UK, you actually what you find is these politicians turn up when they need votes, put their damal on, get us up a committee member and mate the politician of like mates or whatever that's and what that's we've it. become never, yeah that's what exactly we've become in fact our vancouver gurdwara tragically hosted modi mad right like the same modi right like they they communities tried to protest and this is probably getting on sensitive topic but hey let's call a spade a spade like they're silent now many of these powerful people who brought modi and stephen harper who's like you know, a, a, a kind of right-wing conservative leader in Canada to the Vancouver Raw Street Gurdwara. And it's so tragic if you think about the history I just told you of, of that very Gurdwara. It's changed from the location of where it originally was. But if you think about what Cause of the Wan Society Vancouver was a century ago in terms of activism and who now we're placating to, I, I'm perhaps oversimplifying the politics of it. As you know, this politics is so complicated and messy. But you know, it's it's tragic. It's it's sad that now, you know, this is what Modi is doing to Punjabi Sikhs and farmers in India. 
but just to be like devil's advocate, I, I guess I get what you mean by like politics is layered and it's complicated. But equally, I guess looking back, just like a historical analogy, which I like to throw out there is, is that um, when the British prime minister came back after signing the armistice with Hitler, everyone was like, yeah, that's great politics. And then actually two months later, the Second World War starts and everyone's like, yo, you are a dumbass, man. <laughs> So what I mean is that, like I, I respect the politics side of things, but equally I think your comment about calling a spade a spade, like if you're a fascist, you're a fascist. And as far as I'm concerned, like Sikhi and fascism aren't compatible. So I don't Oh, I agree. And that's why, you know, I love these conversations about our historical past because I think I have a problem with people who use parts of our history to serve their purposes. Right? Like our history is what it is. Our Gurdwaras were activist spaces, our Gurdwaras were um, anti-colonial spaces, anti-systems of power spaces. And now you're 100% right, Amr. We're serving the people and, you know, essentially kissing the people's ass who are harming us. So I, you're right. Like it's some, That's why I said sometimes it's, we do have to create those boundaries of people who are explicitly problematic or explicitly fascist, right? Um, and that's why, you know, Gurdwares are not that we all talk about the committee issues, the lack of gender representation in these committees, the power, the cast um, power dynamics in these committees. This is where all the, these conversations need to be had. You know, we don't have gender representation. We don't have um, uh, a caste equity in these spaces. In fact, they're separate caste gurdwares, right? Like that's a whole other tangent I'm going on. But it speaks to larger issues of what we're supposed to be and our history has showed us compared to what we've become in many ways. No, you're right. Even in like even where we live in Coventry, there's a, a Javidas Godora. And and when we were growing up, we never went like even to this day, I don't think I've I think I've been there once maybe. Um and we've like we've just we never ever went there and I've always wondered like why not? And it wasn't but I come from quite a mixed background, so it wasn't actually anything to do with caste because my mum's half white anyway. So there isn't really caste in that in that respect. And and to be honest, like I was aware that we were Turkans, but I never quite understood what that meant. I just thought always associated with that being a woodworker. And Ramgadia, from what I always understood, it wasn't necessarily a cat. So certain things we just weren't exposed to in that respect. Um, but no, you're right. It is a, it, the the committees, they've become very weird structures because what they were established to be isn't what they are at the moment. And I think a lot of that also has to, to answer for why the youth seem to disengage with these structures because you're like, well, actually, and, and to be fair, actually, I remember the, the thing that kicked off this ramblings of a Sikh thing was I was at a Sikh society lecture during my first year of my uh, undergraduate degree and it was basically the the Pradhan of the local Godola had come with the slideshow of the 10 seat gurus and the Panch Bihari and I was like our and he also just told that kind of sanitized history of Yegunayak Devji he was born he was a Hindu and then he had a revelation and then this happened and then and you're just like but a, that's kind of not really the truth. B, you've sanitized us to the like such an extent we've essentially just become hairy Christians. And I was like, I, I need to do something about this. I was like, I cannot, like, I can't, I can't claim to be a Sikh and then let my man over there tell everyone what we are because it's 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 not correct. The other thing is, Amar, like, I do, you know, evolution is really important as a part of these conversations about our history, our growth, our questioning as a, as a Sangat and community, right? So when we're talking about what the way, let's say, Sikh Canadian history was a century plus ago, our population was very different. The demographics and the knowledge that these demographics came with is very different. So we've exploded as a community. The divergences of lived experiences and, you know, double migration histories and, and um, just, yeah, demographics has grown. So I understand that there's going to be evolution 
in our communities, right? And so I keep mentioning, you know, how we intersect transphobia and homophobia in our conversations, because now that's something we have to be attuned to as well as a Sikh Sangat, and we're not yet, because there's so much violence being enacted on, you know, um, historians and activists and academics who identify as LGBTQ2IA, um, right? Um, so why I say that is, I, I'm just always mindful of where, what kind of evolution are we in right now? And, you know, what are we heading towards and what do we ideally want? And for me, it is really about looking to my past to to shape my future. It sounds very cheesy, but it really helps me. I know what you mean. I can. I, I, it's a very similar thing with myself, which is like, how do you understand who you are and your identity and, and where you fit into the wider scheme of things? And also from a personal perspective, coming from a mixed race background, I was always like, well, my grandma is blonde and blue eyed and my dad is like quite dark skinned. So I've always been like, how, like what, like, and, and it was never, it never registered to me that there was a difference until someone else was like, yo, your grandma ain't the same color as you. And I was like, huh? Like, and I know it sounds really stupid, right? But it's it's only when someone others you do, you realize, well, hold on. Yeah, I am. Like, I am different. Because we want to box ourselves. Everybody, we want to box each other and say, like, you started off by saying, you know, what do you identify as? Really, I could say I identify as a mother. I identify as a, you know what I mean? Like, I can identify myself 50 different ways. But we want to box ourselves in a simple way so we can figure each other out. And I think we have to get rid of that concept. We figure each other out by talking to each other. That's it. Yeah. And I think just quickly kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, that's probably the biggest problem. People are either not knowing how to engage constructively yeah. um, or just don't bother or yeah. like don't bother at all. OK, just just continuing then with Canadian Sikh history. I, the Gursik Temple of Abbotsford's established. And then something that for me was quite interesting was before the Komagatu Maru incident, there was kind of a twin boat um, and they, uh, the Panama Maru, if I'm correct. And essentially what happened was there were 38 Sikhs. Uh, well, from what I read, it said Punjabi Sikhs. So I guess that's probably important. Um, and there was a Canadian judge to essentially overrule them being deported. And it was kind of off the back of that, that a Singaporean businessman, Gurdit Singh Sandhu, decided to try to circumvent the the immigration laws in Canada and hired privately the Komagatumaru ship. I just want to know a little bit more about the initial case, the court case and kind of just what that's about. Um, and then is there really much of a correlation between the two boats in terms of like, was the success of one really the deciding factor to kind of set sail with the second one? Oh, that's a really great question. Most, I think all your facts are correct on this one. I, I'm going to tell a funny side story. So I took a course um, at UVic, which is a university here, and we reenacted um, the courtroom scene in the Panama Maru. And so I played the lawyer. So I just a random funny story because I, oh, I wow. love drama. <laughs> so, it, but um, I have and we played it out in the original court where that case took place. So it was really neat um, being a part of that experience. But I think um, Panama Maru, it was almost a fluke, though, in many ways that I think these men like the, the judge happened to side on the favor of these men, because as we've seen, the state design was designed to kind of exclude right sick Canadians and not allow sick Canadians in it. It, it by all means and purposes ended up being just luck um, that these men were all allowed to come in and the judge happened to side on them. Gurdit Singh's angle has been studied by many different historians and, and some say that, you know, 
it was an economic enterprise and naturally, right? He's a merchant. He wants to be able to see if he can circumvent the racist legislation that said you only can come to Canada on a continuous journey um, from your origin country. And Canada stopped CPR ships from doing a straight continuous passage. So it was designed to stop people from India coming to Canada, very specifically designed. So Gurdit Singh did have a kind of a ding moment and a business opportunity and said, hey, I'm going to charter my own ship and I'm going to circumvent this law. And if it works, I'm going to make a business out of it. Um, But I also don't want to minimize the fact that, yeah, that may have been a reason for him to do it. He also knew from his memoirs that he write, he was part of something much bigger. He was part of a conversation of uh, empire as well, because these Sikhs and these South Asians and these uh, citizens of India saw themselves as a part of the British Empire. So it was, it was also a challenge to the British Empire to say, okay, you're going to call us one of your own. You're going to call us into war um, when you go into World War One and World War Two. Uh, well, it'll be World War Two later. Let's see whether you really think we're one of yours, right? Like even the passport said, citizens of the British Empire. Um, that was, Gurdit Singh went in knowing that. So I think it's really important to have that nuance when we question Gurdit Singh's reasonings. What was he doing? Was it all selfish? Um, I think that's falling into a trap of um, homogenizing who he was. And I think he had a bigger purpose to challenge racist systems, to challenge empire, to challenge Canadian state formations, which were trying to stop six from coming to Canada. Um, I literally forgot the question you were asking as I'm talking. <laughs> No, no, not a problem. Um, I, you've answered the the question in relation to uh, is actually kind of the the first ship related to the second ship, and and you've knocked that on the head. And then we've spoken about Gurdit Singh Sandu. Now, just continuing with him, the interesting thing that I read, and again, it may be incorrect, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is is that at the same time as that he was hiring this boat, he was almost, he was also publicly going out there and basically ridiculing the Gadarite movement. I didn't hear that. I've never heard that. Okay, I well then in that case we'll perhaps shelve this question, but I will send you what I found, and and it'll be interesting just to get your um get your input on it essentially. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, basically I read something and it said that whilst he was in Hong Kong, he publicly uh, uh, espoused the God that I caused and was like, yeah, I've got nothing to do with them. Because you know what happened when they were in Hong Kong, a um, Bhagwan Singh. Gianni, I think that was his name, went on the ship, Kamagatamun. I have Bhagwan Singh's biography, which is an amazing read. He is a explicit Gadarite, and he went on the ship and did his like, you know, amazing speeches rallying the people on the Kamagatamaru. Um, and I believe that's a historical proven fact he did that. And I know even in Gurdit Singh's own memoirs, um, he wrote his own memoirs in Punjabi and it's been translated in um, English. I don't recall reading that, but I'd be interested to know where you read that and, and what his thoughts were of the Gadar movement. Sure. Yeah, no, not a problem. Well, whilst we're on the topic of the Gadar movement, I would love you to just explain for everyone listening, who are they? What are they? Where did they start from? And how do they tie into the Kamagatu Maru incident? Because we've kind of touched upon it briefly. Um, but yeah, I'd love to love to get your input on that. So the Gadar movement, Gadar means mutiny or rebellion, is an anti-colonial movement trying to get rid of um, British rule in India. But what's fascinating about it is it was a written movement, just like we're seeing Tractor to Twitter. uh, The correlations are fascinating, if you ask me. But just like we're seeing happening now um, with the farmers protest movement, it was a movement through the power of pen and the power of print and the power of conveying messages through that uh, poetry and, and, you know, um, spoken word. It 
began in San Francisco. So, you know, a lot of um, the North American subcontinent is connected through, through the Pacific Northwest Passage. And that runs from San Francisco, uh, California, Oregon, um, to Vancouver. This is all connected by a specific, you know, sea connection. And uh, even though it did traverse America and Canada. So that movement began in San Francisco and essentially worked its way up along that Pacific Northwest coast. Um, and, and it was uh, spread through poetry being read in different gurdwares in America and Canada, spread through uh, newspapers being shared. And, you know, if you picture this a century ago, there, of course, there was no phones, no social media, the way we have accessibility now. The way this rose was so incredibly impactful that it created this revolutionary movement where people in the diaspora, where South Asians in the diaspora were trying to get rid of colonial rule in India. Um, the the power, most powerful part of the movement was from the years 1913 to 1918. Um, unfortunately, the movement didn't have as much impact in India. Um, and there's fascinating stories about Gadarite you know, allying in uh, Germany, I believe, or parts of Russia, um, you know, speaking to leaders in these different countries. So it was really almost like a pan-world movement, or at least they tried to make it into a pan-world movement. But for me, what's fascinating is the poetry of Gadar. And I literally have a book on my desk right now as we speak called Gadar Leher Da Kavita. And it's just poems, a collection of poems in uh, Punjabi. And they are some of the most powerful words that affect us to this very day. Like the things that they wrote about in 1913, 1912 and onwards is so impactful to us today. So it's almost like these histories are evergreen. These histories are tragically or not tragically constantly perpetuating, right? Um, I think that's, even though we can look at, okay, it wasn't didn't have the outcome it wanted, but for me, the impact of Gather and many historians have studied it, is just the way they traverse communication lines through the power of poetry and um, revolution in the Gurdwaras. No, I think that's a fair response to that question. Just staying with the Komagatu Maru incident, obviously it exposed once again that Canada is a white man's country. Um, obviously in that period it was all to do with the empire and colonialism etc it also exposed the unfairness of british colonial rule and the second class nature of south asians because i believe when the ship ended up going back to calcutta which happens to be the place my granddad's from the basically most of the people on the ship were just beaten by the uh police and i i think i read a few people died as a result so what i wanted to ask and especially with your knowledge of sikh settlement within canada over the last hundred years or so is how significant was the komagatu Maru incident to changing attitudes to immigration at that point? And then how has its legacy affected immigration within Canada since? I think my assessment of it would be that in the moment Kamagata Maru happened and the ship was sent back and that violence erupted, I don't think there, there was immediate response or like a legacy or impact because World War One had started. So it's actually quite a tragic picture if you think about it, right? Like the ships, the men on uh, board the Komagatamaru ship are going back. In the same moment, uh, many Sikh soldiers are heading into war for Britain. Like literally those kind of two moments, historical moments are colliding. And once again, cognitive dis dissonance in terms of when empire calls, who is there versus when, um, you know, certain people want to migrate and settle who's wanted and not want. Um, so in that moment, there wasn't necessarily impact. I think it's the reflective moments when historiography enters, when historians like Hugh Johnston and Renisa Mawani and so many others started saying, wow, like this 
kind of lightning rod moment in 1914 hasn't really been studied a lot, but it's actually got incredible impact. That's the work that shows this was such a direct challenge to racist Canadian legislation as a part of larger systems of legislation and racism that it can't be underestimated, right? And that's why the work of Hugh Johnston's is so important because he's really the one who first shed light on how important this was. And this is what happens when historical moments aren't um, given their due limelight or due assessment. And this is why historians are so important, right? Like that's our job is to go back and reassess the archive, look at different multiple perspectives and say, literally something's been totally erased from our memory. And yet it was something that was so important. And so now in hindsight, we know how important the Kamagatam route is. It isn't just about what happened in 1914. It is about um, systems of uh, erasure and power within the Canadian history, but also connecting to history of empire. So does it not necessarily have an impact in the modern day? So it does. there's, not a, there's no kind of connection between modern day immigration oh it does oh it does okay so totally oh 100 percent. like there were incidences where in canada there were um, i think it was a boat of um, tamil refugees or refugees from sri lanka came in the 19 oh i'm gonna get this all wrong this isn't a history i know very well so i don't want people like slamming me for getting it wrong but it didn't happen like too long ago basically is what i'm trying to say the way and you mentioned this as well in the UK context and, you know, people who are literally dying trying to find a better place to live. We tend to dehumanize people's migration stories and desperation to find a different land space that isn't oppressive and violent. We don't understand the trauma that people are coming. And it was the same when a six tried to come during the 80s, right? Six from India tried to come and, and settle here based on refugee status or different reasonings. We just assume for some, well, we know the reason why. We assume that they're here to um, under false pretense. Those assumptions aren't, those assumptions come from what happened a century ago to other communities in Canada. Those assumptions come from racialized notions about people who are other than white settler European, right? So what I'm trying to say is the connections of who we allow to move freely between countries is dependent on their race. And it happened not too long ago where uh, Tamil refugees were really vilified and, and not given the kind of nuanced perspective they deserved. So these that's why the history of the Kamangeta Maru is so important, because those trends still con uh, continue. Well, as you've explained, it's quite clear that they do. I'm aware that the next set of questions jumps kind of 30 years from the Gomagoto Madu incident to a photo that I found just while I was researching. Um, I came across some archival photos of what the website had classed as early Sikh settlers in Canada. Well, it was the 1940s, so I guess you can count that as early Sikh settlers, although I guess um, that's like 35 years into it by this point. However, the title was, Here's Evidence of the Prosperity of BC Sikh Settlers. The Patriarch at the Wheel owns a flourishing 300-acre farm at Mission and employs several men. Now, I know there's a hell of a lot loaded into that. One of the things that I just wanted to start with is, is in those kind of 20 years between Gomagotu Madu and this picture, which seems to show a very affluent farmer, what was it like for Sikhs in Canada? Well, I think... Um... In the 1920s was when the Canadian government changed their restrictive legislations that finally would allow 
women and children to reunite with a lot of the majority men who were here before that, you know. Um, so we would see a um, higher immigration rate, I would say not in the 1920s, but 1930s of like women and children now coming and joining their family. So now all of a sudden we're having capacity for home build. Like literally, I mean home in the sense of you're building your communities now um, because you can't unite, you know, if you don't have your significant other, you can't unite, you can't create a community if there aren't children and women and, you know, fostering that growth. So that would happen in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and that's why you have like capacity for more affluent, successful businesses and farm owning and other business ventures boosting and emerging and a significant class of six emerging in these periods as well. And especially when we got the right to vote in 1947, that once again boosted capacity and built a platform uh, by which a lot of sick Canadians could do better and and build their, um, you know, uh, capacity for growth. So that was really the kind of first significant uh, boost. I haven't studied a lot of the kind of migration patterns beyond that, but I didn't. I do know in the 1970s and 80s there was once again a major Sikh settlement um, rise in in Canada, and I think part of that is, of course, what was happening in terms of state-sanctioned violence in India at the time as well. Um, just along with other push and pull factors, I would say. And now we have, you know, the 1990s, like the the. I think the second generation is what we would call them. Like you've got Canadian born kids now, right? Who are living here. So when I talk about the changing demographics, that's also within that, right? You talked about younger generation. All of a sudden, these younger generation are now having conversations or not having conversations about 1984 and trying to learn about themselves or trying to choose, pick and choose. Am I going to be Canadian? Am I going to be Indo-Canadian? What's East Indian in this mix? Um, that's taking place. And, and here we are in, you know, 2020s where youth are still struggling with identity. That's always going to be an issue. I think for anybody is to struggle with identity. Yeah, no, like personally speaking, I remember having an identity crisis when I was like 15, maybe. Wow, I had it when I was like in my 20s. <laughs> well, this was the thing I like. So although we grew up in a family where we celebrated, like we celebrated everything, Christmas, Diwali, Vasaki, you name it, like we celebrated it. And my, I guess what most Punjabis would call their nanny, we used to call her Ma because in Bengali, that's what you call your mother. Um, So we'd call her Ma and she would actually do the whole Christmas thing, right? The whole Christmas shebang, because obviously that was her tradition, so to speak. But we were brought up in a Sikh family, quote unquote, like we all like mom. Although mom came from a mixed background herself and never actually knew about Sikhi, she agreed to keep our kiss and and whatever. And I remember going to school and I was like, oh, and also I should add, she made my dad take omelette with her. So what was interesting is that kind of the age of 15, I was like, I don't know. I don't really fit in with all of these guys. No one looks like me. We're not having the same conversations. We're coming from completely different perspectives and all of this other stuff. And I, I remember literally breaking down in the car with my dad and being like, yo, I don't fit in with no one. Like, like I was just effing and blinding. And then you may have heard of a group called the NKJ in the UK. They happen to be the same people that I was that you could class as my sangat at that age yeah and to be quite blunt I realized I didn't fit in with them either I was like this kind of Christianized Sikhi and and to be fair I'm quite happy because it turned out afterwards that the, well you can listen to the audio recordings yourself so yeah so I kind of realized at a very young age I didn't fit in had a bit of an identity crisis and kind of from that I guess all of this has kind of come to fruition you know what's great though Amr like I feel like we have the organizations 
to find our space and place now. Like if you talk about what it was like for you when you were 15 and me when I was in my 20s, right? The amount of organization, and that's what I love. Like even though some organizations may have different philosophies or different practices or different whatever, like you can find your space as a sick, no matter how you identify in multiple different ways, because we've grown so much as a, uh, as a Sangat. And there's so many different organizations. I'm seeing this now with the movement, with the farmers protest movement, the amount of organizations that exist I mean there's a space for us. And I think that's that's the positive. That's the beauty. There is a, an, a tremendous amount of unity that's come out of this Kassan protest. Like the last person that we had a podcast podcast with about the Sangdun. Again, we were celebrating the fact that the Nahangs were on the right side of history in this respect. Like, I'm not saying that they're not in 1984. I would kind of argue with a lot of people who would argue that the Nahangs were in the wrong, but that's just a personal preference. But I think the legacy of the 80s in relation to the Nahangs has kind of just been now all of a sudden blasted out of the water because they've turned up. They are on the right side of history and it's brilliant to see that. And we're allowed to make mistakes and 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 ch- like about going back to evolution. Why do we always look to something that was done and say, oh, but they did that then? Well, okay, but they're doing this now. It's the deep Siddhu argument, though, right? Like he he's he's pictured with Sunny Sunny Diol or whatever. Oh, but now he. Anyways, that's complicated. I'm totally opening a can of worms. But what I'm trying. Sorry, I was just going to add to that, but that's kind of like saying, oh, Guru Gobind Singh Ji was friends with Bahadur Shah, and then Bahadur Shah went and uh, put Banda Singh Bahadur in a cage. I see what you're saying there are like we have to be careful obviously who we're associating with and all the rest of it but i think it's it's a big jump to go from oh yeah they had a photo to he's an agent or whatever the the conclusion is in that respect and i think also just one thing in 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 respect to just what we're talking about now i think it also just comes down to your perspective so if you're looking at certain things from i don't know say the nation state perspective you're not you're just not going to come to those same conclusions um whether that but that's again kind of on on them so to speak one thing just going back to that photograph of the farmer that i found in the 40s one thing that seemed to be quite a common in a lot of the archival imagery that i found was that it was now i know i'm making a huge generalization in this entire was it essentially a jot migration was it the fact that it, it was farming that led to such a big punjabi Sikh community going out there Oh, I'm glad you asked me that because I forgot to mention that, right? Like we do have to acknowledge that the vast majority of this 90% of sick migrants who came to Canada came because they had caste privilege. Like the vast majority were land owning, perhaps, you know, dating back to being jamindars and getting perks as part of the British Empire. It goes back that far, that perpetuity of privilege. So that's why they were able to, you know, afford to be able to take the ship to come here. Or oftentimes it was the younger son who would, who would come because the older son would be taking care of the land back home. So the caste privilege was absolutely there. But at the same time, I don't want to erase the fact that Dalit histories exist in Canada, dating back as early as 1904 and 1905. So we're currently working at the South Asian Studies Institute to try to, and partnering with organizations that work with, you know, Dalit communities to, to re, to one, going back to my invisibilizing the stories, us actually not highlighting these stories is harmful as well. So it's so important that we look at the various different Dalit communities who have such entrenched history in this country. And why is it that we're not looking to them and highlighting them? So those uh, histories do actually exist. And, you know, multiple caste community histories exist. But the majority were jucked because they had that privilege of owning land. 
there. So, I mean, they had to be affluent in the first place in order to afford. Okay, no, understood. That makes sense. So, as you've mentioned, South Asians get the right to vote back in 1947, I think. Um, is the fact that you've had World War One, World War Two, you've had partition, are all of these essentially domino effects to forcing the government's hand in giving the right to vote back rather than it being kind of this altruistic like yeah i'm gonna give all the south asians their vote back oh your first point is bang on that's absolutely what it was but i also don't want to minimize the fact that for 40 years our community rallied and rallied and sent delegations to ottawa um you know spending their own funds trying to get the vote so for 40 years that movement was always there um you know we allied with labor union group uh, uh, we allied with other communities like Chinese Canadians to get the right to vote. Um, no vote, no war or no war, no vote was a, a campaign. Right. So that movement was always there, but it absolutely was a domino effect. I think the the ramifications of what happened after World War II uh, in the Canadian context and kind of the um, yeah partition and, and just that 40 year grunt work that happened is what led to South Asians getting the right to the vote. It's a much more complicated and timeline history. And we did an exhibit actually looking at that entire history of the vote. It is very complex, but it certainly wasn't, like you said, this altruistic, all of a sudden, let's give them the right to the It was no way in shape that simplistic. It was a 40-year struggle and a, and a shared solidarity fight to get that right. And it is interesting, though, the the have to highlight the partnering with unions, right? Like, so a lot of Sikhs work uh, in lumber, in the industry of lumber. Um, and so the... I think it was the IWA, it was called the International Woodworkers Association, um, was one of those unions that supported the South Asian right to the vote. And I think that history of unionization, once again, something we're seeing now, is a significant one. It's a it's a cross intersection of, you know, labor and race um, kind of coming together for that right. Just making a joke off the back of that, I think someone's going to cut that bit out of the podcast and just brandish you as a leftist. Oh, God. But, you know, I would counter that by saying, okay, that's what I mean, though. Look at the history of what these sorts of union groups have done. That you wouldn't connect union movements to a right to vote. No, but I think you've been correct throughout the podcast when you've been commenting about how a lot of histories are, or a lot of history actually ends up erasing others. So one example that I use all the time is, and something that when I read it, I was kind of shocked, is that Guru Gobind Singh Ji's wife adopted a son after her son had become Shaheed and also named him Ajit Singh in memory of, of her of her child. The only reason that I find that interesting is because within Punjabi Sikh communities, this entire notion of adoption is just like, it's just no note. Like I've, I've never heard of it. The entire notion is almost like a taboo subject. I'm not trying to like be an advocate for adoption with the Punjabi Sikh community, but I, it's just highlighting that actually bringing certain histories to the forefront completely changes your perspective on things. I also I'm going to th say something really controversial and who knows if I'm going to get in trouble for this. Even when we look at histories of early six settlers in um, Canada, uh, I don't want to over nostalgize it either. Like there are studies that have been done that these Sikh men, you know, led double lives like they had affairs with white women or, or other women and had children. And there have been fights and claims to territory and property. And even though, you know, their family and children and wives are in India. And at the same time, there was also incidences of, you know, homosexuality, these Sikh Canadians. These are the, and it's been written and studied by like Nayan Shah, um, an amazing book. 
I say this just to say, just to highlight the fact we erase these complex narratives because we want to just perpetuate a nostalgized version. I'm not saying these men didn't face incredible oppression and racism and, and you know, barriers to access to anything, really. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there's also multifaceted ways that they live in Canada. Well, I, I guess what you're actually saying is they're still human. Like, so I guess it, with history, what, what we do is we end up, as you've said, we end up sanitizing them into our perspective. So if, it, if for argument's sake, I find homosexuality uncomfortable, I'm going to erase that from the narrative or, or whatever the issue might be. And I think actually it's interesting, the parallels from this conversation with the last conversation about the segment, which is actually, it's about telling the real history, whether that is difficult to process or not, isn't actually at the historian's concern in that respect. It's that's like your personal issue. And I think that's really important, actually. Um, I've made note of the of the book and the author that you've mentioned, Nayan Shah, because I'm going to go and, and read it. It sounds very, very interesting. It's really changed my perspective on how I look uh, from, yeah, I would really recommend it. No, thank you. Um, There are two questions that I wanted to end with, really. One of the things that I've personally found quite interesting is that, um, actually, let's just relate it to this. So the, Can the Canadian Encyclopedia website says, heightened Sikh consciousness has led to an increase in Amritaris and Kirstaris, even among second and third generation Canadians. What I find interesting about that is the fact that the term Amritari and Kirstari are there just full stop. And then just adding a personal perspective to that, Canada in terms of, so the book sales that we've had, in terms of outside of the UK, Canada is number one. Even in terms of the podcast that we've done, Canada as a country comes up number one every time by a large amount. And also to add on to that, like I'm sure loads of people are aware, but you've got Sikh, Punjabi, Canadian artists, singers, politicians, you've got obviously Jagmeet Singh, you like list goes on and on and on and on and on. Now, what I find interesting is what is it about Canada that that almost incubates this seat identity spirit, whatever it is, however you wish to label it, but it is almost synchronous with being a Canadian. So there doesn't seem to be so there doesn't seem to be like an othering or a backlash to a lot of these people. Whereas even with just black actors or actresses in the UK, for argument's sake, there was a section on daytime television the other week where it was it was like a it was essentially like a countryside walk program where they just walk around a countryside and they show you like how beautiful it is and what the rest of it. And it was a black family and the TV program people had like 300 complaints just about that, just the fact that they were black. So what is it then about Canada that seems to incubate this particularly unique Sikh consciousness, I guess, using the Canadian encyclopedia's words? That is such a good question. I almost feel like we should end on that because I'm going to be a while answering this. I'm taking notes as as you were asking me. So I also I think that yes, there is that um, kind of incubation. I love that word you used and a knowledge around Sikh identity in Canada, but it exists in specific places. And there are still places across Canada that are incredibly racist, incredibly like um, internalized, like almost like the red, what we would call redneck versions of Americans exist in Canada, it totally exists in Canada too. Um, the, the the largest populations of Sikhs are like in West and East Canada, right? Like Brampton is a huge Punjabi Sikh population, Surrey, BC, everybody kind of knows of these city names. And so in these places, 
it's much more common to see we know the language around Gurdwara. We're really pushing for that rather than saying temple, temple, temple. It's become a, a real push for us to say, say Gurdwara. Like we're, we're going to learn your verbiage. You can learn our verbiage. So we're really claiming our kind of language as an access point to our identity. That's happening wonderfully, beautifully, but redneck spaces and really racist places exist totally in Canada as well. I think this is a tough question to answer, but I think once again, I'm going to look back to history. I think because we've been so politically astute, and I don't mean politically in the kind of uh, pandering to capital, you know, L, liberal, capital C, concern. I don't talk about politics in that way. I just mean to be attuned to the pulse of what's happening in terms of policies around you. That's what I mean when I say politics. And I think sick, sick Canadians have been attuned to that since the moment they arrived in Canada, right? We've been positioned to be attuned to that because of our role uh, within the British Empire. We've been attuned to that because of our Sikh history too. Uh, the Sikh Raj is one of being politically astute and strategizing and using that as a way to um, benefit, to reap benefits in different ways. So I think our history is what has lent, lent, led us to have these amazing platforms we have and yes, in uh, actual political spaces, but also in the art, like you mentioned, um, you know, um, the just reigns of the world and all that. So I think it's just because we we stand on the shoulders of giants truly. Like, and I, I truly mean that. Like, we're standing on the shoulders of many people, not just six, right? Like Dr. D.P. Pandya, for example, was a lawyer who advocated so much for the rights of um, Sikh settlement to occur. He fought so hard. He fought with us for the right to the vote. Uh, Hussein Rahim was a, a Muslim activist in the community during the Panama Maru and pre that. He was one of the leaders on the Shore Committee. So these um, moments and communities and just constantly aware of the policies around us that shape our lives is what makes us as a community stronger. You know, I also feel... Our Gurdwara spaces are so incredibly unique if we utilize it. Like, I feel like our, like, this is what I found in the Heritage Gurdwara. And we kind of started with the Heritage Gurdwara. And I think it's really beautiful. We get to end perhaps with, with the Gurdwara spaces, right? Like our basic concepts of seva through langar, or even like Gurdwaras that have created Khalsa schools and Gurmat centers. We are raising new generations, children who know these histories. And we're teaching children to not just memorize histories and not engage, we're teaching these children to learn histories and question. So we are, I'm hopeful that we are raising new generations of Sikh will perhaps choose to be Amritari and Keshtari because they've learned their histories and they know what they are doing when they make that decision. I think that's why we are, we have such an incredible presence in this country. And I'm really excited to see what we do going forward as well. Because I know in the question you gave me, you named like, you know, Lily Singh and Jasreen and others. I do argue and I would push that those people who have amazing platforms need to use their platforms. And that's something that kind of bothers me. And that's what I, uh, politics aside, that's what I adore about Jagmeet Singh. And I truly use the word adore. You said he's kind of an ideology or the word he used was just bang on. But he addresses 84. He addresses injustices. He address, addresses, you know, indigenous injustices in such a real talk way that I admire. And he's around my age, maybe a little bit older as well, right? I really feel as sick. And our duty, our seva, is if we get a platform and a position of power and privilege, no matter what way that power and privilege is, it is our duty to speak out. And I, I, I just don't, I'm tired of people who have these platforms and stay silent. 
It really bothers me. I just feel like it's just, I may be sounding really judgmental, but it just seems the antithesis of what we are as a history. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you're completely correct in terms of saying that even these people who have established their careers or kind of built off of the community, so to speak, to not be heard or seen when you could actually be playing a very pivotal role um, kind of speaks volumes. Just bringing us full circle, and perhaps this would be a great way to to conclude the, the podcast, which is the Sikh Heritage Museum was established in 2011. So it'll be 10 years this year. What in particular led to the decision to create that. First of all, what led to that being built? And then secondly, was there any opposition? Because even trying to get anything built at any Gurdwara seems to embroil all sorts of crazy politics and machinations. So please enlighten me. So um, the idea um, came from my mentor, actually, Dr. Sitwinder Baines, who really was the visionary. Um, it was a couple of years before the centennial was coming up of the actual building of the Gurdwara, which would have been 2011, would have been the 100 year celebration. So I think a few years before that, it was kind of conversation building where she said, you know, the longer space is no longer viable. It's not being used. Why don't we create a legacy within that base where we convert the longer hall into a fully functioning museum? We would put track lights in and and create the rails that we can hang things from the Gurdwara space. Really her vision and work to create the Gurdwara. And and shockingly enough, there was full support from the Gurdwara committee at the time. There is a newer Gurdwara across the street from the Heritage Gurdwara that's fully functioning as a typical, what we would normally think of as a Gurdwara. That's where all like their focus is usually on is the daily functioning of that Gurdwara space. So the Heritage Gurdwara was actually kind of neglected, if I'm not going to lie. So it was a moment to revive that space and and re-energize that space. What better way to do it than build a... Uh, so there was not a lot, there was none opposition really from the Gurdwara committees. And Satwinder and I have been so privileged that as two Sikh women, we pretty much have like kulli shutti to do whatever kind of exhibits we want to do in that space. And I, I'm very privileged and very blessed that we get to function in that way. It just works out nicely that we face no friction. We did an exhibit on Sikh feminism and it was beautifully received. Like we did a beautiful opening where there was poetry read downstairs in the museum hall. Yeah. And just beautifully received. And it traveled to other um, uh, places across British Columbia as well. So it's just been, I think it's just once again, the the spirit of Jardikala and just the good energy and goodwill is there in that Gurdwara. And that's why we're allowed to do what we do uh, with the support of our Sangat in our community. That's an awesome response to why and how that got built. And the fact that the entire community was behind it, it, I got to admit that's a shock. And equally, the fact that you guys have been allowed just the space to pretty much do what you guys want. I think that's beautiful. I think that that ability to actually like, all right, do what you kind of want with it and, and the things that you have done with it. I know we've got to the end of the podcast and I really would love to pick your brain about Sikh feminism. But just to keep everyone listening on the edge of their seats, we'll leave that for a separate podcast podcast. But no, I, I just would like to conclude with obviously saying thank you. As I expected, the conversation has been brilliant and enlightening. Thank you for listening to episode eight of the Sort podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support the work we're doing, please consider becoming a Patreon today. You can find out more information by following Ramblings of a Sikh on Instagram or Rambling Singh on Twitter.